Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley, and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and it's my pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Ben Stevens, who's joining us all the way from what used to be the Great White North, but is now the Great Sunny North of Canada. Ben, how are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Ben is with uh, Somatic Senses Education and uh, has just completed what in these times would be a you know, if we, if we name the number of cities you saw in the last three months, people may be jealous and think that you did not take the stay in place orders seriously, but you just happened to uh, unknowingly align your travel plans with the, the uh, COVID virus, right? You ended about when everybody had to stay inside. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, I, I wouldn't have ended if I didn't have to stay inside. I had a, a very, very busy, I had 37 weekends on the road planned for this year, so. Uh, I got a lot in early in the year and just so happens that the COVID thing kind of broke out when I was at the, uh, when I was in Las Vegas, when I was at the UFC Performance Institute, it was the first I heard of it. And several weeks after that, it was kind of game over and been home ever since. Nice. Well, it's funny. We just interviewed uh, Tara Giroux. Is that how she says it? Giroux? Uh, Giroux, yeah. Giroux uh, yeah. with the UFC PI, which is, she had a great story there. So I'm glad you got to see that. So uh, you're traveling this much. Is that for work? Is that for teaching? Uh, why so much travel? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mix of things. So uh, I run uh, Somatic Senses Education, which is the biggest continuing ed company in Canada of its type. So we do primarily live courses for uh, chiro, physio, massage, strength coaches, trainers, um, and a mix of a whole lot of other things. So we do uh, anywhere from 20 to we've done up to 70, seven zero courses a year before across Canada wow. and a little bit, a little bit in the Pacific Northwest. You know, so there's that, only that, 52 weeks in a year. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. Okay. Believe me, it gets busy. So that, that was a big part of it. Um, is I spend a lot of the time, a lot of my time on the road learning. So I, I'm one of those people that kind of has pretty well every three letter acronym after your name that you can get. I've got it. Um, I don't tend to advertise it, but um, we, we bring in kind of pretty well any big hitter that we possibly can and have for the last 16 years. And um, so that's a big part of it. I used to be, uh, I was the first rock tape instructor in Canada many years ago. Um, and so I was the most active rock tape instructor across Canada and kind of got used to traveling a lot for that. Did, you know, 10 to 15 courses a year tops on that. Um, and then this year, the reason I was at the Performance Institute and a lot of the other places that you saw I've been, um, is I live in a town called Kelowna, British Columbia. And a big part of what uh, I've been leaning heavily into lately is kind of the, the high performance model and trying to figure out um, where the really uh, highly intelligent people live in our industry and where the really highly motivated and forward thinking and innovative therapists go and what they want to do. And essentially the, the, the places that I, I kind of ended up on is most of them had a, an inkling towards sports or had an inkling towards education. And I was already massively involved in education and realized that my background was in sport growing up. I played everything going, um, but I wanted to figure out a little more of what high performance was like. So I kind of started what I called my high performance project. 
So I called in a lot of the favors that I had around the industry um, from people that I know in professional sports teams and organizations. Um, called a lot of them up and said, "Hey, I want to I want to come to you and and hang out with you for you know a day, two days, an afternoon, a week, whatever it might be." Um, and that was that was a big part of the list that you kind of saw online. And so the first half of this year was supposed to be the UFC Performance Institute, the uh, Canadian Sport Institute, the Seattle Seahawks, um, and there were several others on the list that all got canceled. But um, as a result, you know, I, I traveled to teach in-person courses. I traveled to host courses through Somatic Senses, and I was also adding probably another five to ten weekends because of the, uh, the high performance desires I had for the year. So you add all that up and it makes for kind of a busy year. Yeah, I would say so. Well, this is interesting. I, I thought we would talk about education and, and uh, the need to empower people by putting a kettlebell in their hand, but I do have some questions now that you've explained your uh, high performance project a little bit. Um, you know, I often have said over the last couple of years that there's never been a better time to be a chiropractor. Uh, I think that the, the scope is expanding and, you know, the abilities and what we're recognized as being able to do is, is um, greater now than it's ever been. But um, let me ask you this. What, what are you seeing as the capabilities of chiropractors from what you saw 10 years ago? Oh my God, it's phenomenal. I mean, uh, even just looking at what uh, certain groups are doing, like the whole R2P movement that's going on in schools now. So like when I was in school, like we had, uh, we had one rehab class um, and we had a sports council that would go and do essentially acute care. We acted like athletic therapists on site. You know, we did acute, you know, everything from wound management to, you know, putting people on stretchers and those sorts of things. And kind of what was considered sports chiropractic at the time was you were a chiropractor, but you also did crashed in an ART. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what it was 10 years ago. Um, and so when I was in school, um, I came from a training background, so I really wanted training to be a big part of what I did. And so when I showed up to school, I was going to some of the early perform better seminars. Uh, I drove from San Jose to Long Beach and back every year. I was going and taking all this continuing ed because I kind of felt like, you know, this is where we should be going anyway. And it was just natural for kind of my, my background and what I wanted to do. I didn't expect everyone to do it. But I mean, now, like I talked to freaking R2P club presidents. And for one thing, I mean, they have, they have a, a basic skill set that comes just from going through an R2P program that you would have had to be a strength coach or a trainer to have before that, right? So kids are graduating from school now. You know, I say kids, but they're not all kids, obviously. But That's I mean, fine. I call them kids as, as well. It just means younger than us, right? Exactly. So, I mean, Kairos are graduating from school now understanding the basics of training equals rehab, understanding better loading, understanding better coaching and cueing. They've all, they've all know who McGill is. They've all heard of DNS. They've all see, seen some weights um, and they're much better at the, the peripheral aspects and they're not just adjusting machines. Right. And it's, it's phenomenal. The skill set that a lot of people have now. So it's like, to me, it's like, you know, there, there's kind of two sides to it. One of it is awesome because I go, yeah, it makes me really excited to be part of this profession. And then another part of me goes like, damn, I got to get good at this. Like, yeah. they're, they're coming for me, man. I think it's funny too. Like, there's a lot of uh, chiropractors that, that kind of get on the, the, or they focus a lot of energy in the uh, few years ago when a lot of physical therapy, state associations and, and state licensing boards were kind of opening the scope up to manipulation. And they're like, oh, they're going to, you know, they're taking our tool. And I, if, I hung around the performance crowd as well. And it was like, they're advancing so fast. Like that was old news and, and who cares, you know, like our abilities are going to way outpace anybody's ability to catch up. And it's like, yeah, we'll show you. I always say it's like, if you, you know, the new England Patriots, they'll show you the playbook. You're just not going to be able to run it as well as they are, 
you know? Exactly. And if you're worried about that skill now, it's a huge part of what we do, but it certainly isn't the only thing. And, and the other skill sets you can add in, I think it's, uh, it's incredibly exciting now to see like Tara being at the UFC PI and, you know, Greg Rose developing uh, TPI and on-base university, like through research and it, they're chiropractors. Nobody else was, was leading them on how to do that. It's, uh, there certainly has not been a better time. So yeah, well, you know, what, there's, Go ahead. there's, there's self-led people in every profession. Right. And I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't really subscribe to the fact that people identify as their profession a lot of the time. I mean, the reality is you could be, it, it's almost more fashionable for a young chiropractor to look like a trainer now than it does a chiropractor, which is, which is kind of odd and whether it's good or bad, and you know, I'm indifferent to it, but, um, there's, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't think the profession makes a difference. I think the people that are going to be good, they're going to be good and they're going to be phenomenal at it mm-hmm. regardless of what profession that they choose. And I think the people that are going to suck, they're going to suck in unique ways dependent on the profession, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like if you people, look at the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, some of them were engineers by training, some of them were uh, accountants by training, some of them were, you know, theologists by training, uh, but they're just drivers and they created a great company through many different methods, you know, that you don't have to always follow the same recipe, but they're, when they're great, they're just great. So it's, it's uh, I think the same thing is, is true. I'd agree with you there. The only, the only thing that... Uh, I hope that a lot of listeners make sure is that we can delineate you from a trainer because, uh, you know, great trainers are, are necessary. They're needed. It's a great profession. And heck in school, I would highly recommend that anybody like become a trainer because I think that's a, that's a fantastic thing to do while you're in school. But then once you get that license, what can you now do that the trainer can't, what, how can you expand your abilities and your scope, uh, that you previously couldn't do? I, I completely agree. It's if anything, um, I, I made that mistake early in my career because I started personal training people when I was 16, right? So I had I, that was my comfort zone more than being a doctor. And when it came down to it, I, a lot of how I kind of built my business was people went, "Oh, he's he's like a chiropractor and a trainer," right? And I kind of prided myself on that originally because I went, "Oh, yeah, that's good," right? It was almost like a better version of a trainer. And I kind of went, well, you could either be a better, better version of uh, a trainer. Essentially, you just have more degrees and more knowledge. But you're not actually going to be a trainer. You're going to be shittier in a lot of ways because you don't have, <laughs> you don't have the background. And so like, I wrote about this a couple months ago. The, the, mm-hmm. It was just a blog post just blatantly called, like, Dear Therapist, You're Not a Strength Coach. Because the reality is like, I, I want part of my previous skill set to bleed into what I do. Um, but I also want to be a doctor. Right. I want to I want to operate at a level that you you can't operate at with a weekend certification. And the reality is um, a lot of the tools that we use in the, re- the rehab and training world, you can learn from a weekend certification, whether that's kettlebells or it's kind of the McGill big three or whatever it's going to be. You can actually go to a weekend certification that trainers are at and have the same skill set. And I think that those are valuable. But I think having that as your your primary skill set is is not going to really do a great job of making you appear highly valuable, worth a lot of money, um, and really look like a doctor, right? So I think there's a, there's a fine line to be, to be walked there where you have to know, you have to know training, you have to know the basics, you have to kind of have an awareness of it all. Um, but I think, you know, like I'm not, I'm not doing energy system development. Like I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not coaching Olympic lifting. I'm not coaching power lifting. I can get someone pretty strong because I've done it for years. Uh, but the reality is if someone wants to compete in those sports or someone wants to be world-class at those things, they should work with a person that that's their full-time job. Uh, and the reality is I'm a, I love being a Cairo and I love where our profession's going, 
but I'm like a lot of people and that, you know, 90% of my clients walk through the door because they've got an injury or they've got pain or they have some, some restraint that I need to help them remove. Um, and I just have a tool set that I think is really well suited to that because I have a training background. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think it, it, if you're, if you're threatened, it's just a sign to, uh, get more educated, I guess I would say to people out there, you know, and, um, and yeah, it, I hope that you have not you, Ben, but I'm saying, I hope that people out there have a lot of spillover between what they do and what their strength coach they work with does or trainer. You should have a lot of mutual language, but doesn't mean that you can, uh, they should be able to take that person further, bigger, faster, stronger than you can, as long as you're keeping that person out of injury. So I think it's a fantastic setup. Uh, with that, I know that you just released a, uh, a kettlebell course. Was it the science of kettlebells? Is that what you yeah, call it? Yeah, uh, just kettlebell science. Yep. Kettlebell science. Yep. Uh, and uh, it goes in crazy depth on how uh, aggressive cast iron supplementation can uh, make a healthy body, huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the story basically goes that I, 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 because I, I spend most of my time in rooms with clinicians and with trainers and a big part of what, uh, you know, the problem, and I, I'll call it an overt problem. A big problem that still exists is that, um, as I've mentioned before, is that therapists still love to rely on freaking therabands and they love to rely on minuscule, little low load, uh, implements over and over. Now, when again. you're saying therapist, you're you're generalizing chiros, PTs, physical therapists, massage therapists, yeah. anybody that's doing rehab. You're it, yeah. you're not calling out one group. We all no, yeah, not good. at all. I think I think I think everybody's doing it. Yeah, um, so you're going to piss off everybody is what you're saying. That's great. Okay, keep going. That's the goal here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and I mean, the, the, I mean, frankly, like I think there is a time and a place for those things, but mm -hmm. I think. I think we give it 90% of, uh, of our, our loading that we do. We give to, we, we give to policing perfection. We give to loading one muscle at a time and we give to very low load. And I think the reality is that the body is a self organizing mechanism and that it is significantly more robust and less fragile than we treat it. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal for me was to develop another tool that could be available to people that would that would try to prove that to them. That would try to show that to them in a logical way because the average therapist isn't going to go, in my opinion anyway, and there's lots that will, most of them aren't going to go take uh, an Olympic lifting seminar. Most of them aren't going to go into bodybuilding, into powerlifting, into kettlebells, into anything that, because it probably seems extreme to a lot of people. And if you grow up in the therapy world and that's where your, your mind space lives and you haven't come from sport or you haven't come from training, it probably seems like undue risk for the most part. And so I developed this course originally called Kettlebells for Clinicians. It started developing like seven years ago. I developed it as Kettlebells for Clinicians and then started teaching it three or four years ago. And essentially what happened is half the people that showed up weren't clinicians. It was people that were trainers or even some general population who they just wanted more detail because they had taken uh, like a one day, two day or a three day kind of kettlebell seminar and they knew all there was to know about how to use a kettlebell. So the very first time I taught this, for instance, I had 35 people show up for the first seminar and out of those 35 people, 20 of them were either strong first or RKC instructors. And a lot of it was because they all had, they, they all had the, what they had the programming. They knew the technique of how to teach someone how to do a snatch or pass a snatch test. They had no idea what the science said because as a guy that's gone through the training myself in kettlebells, they don't talk at all about the anatomy. They don't talk about the clinical applications. They don't talk about the sport or the strength and conditioning applications. It's 100% it's an explanation of how, 
with much less explanation of why. And any how in that world ends up getting looped back into safety or it ends up get, getting looped back into because it makes you better at kettlebells. Um, and that was uh, essentially just a frustration for me. And so I had this background and I knew a lot. I, I came from Olympic lifting before kettlebells. And so and I went, hold on real quick. I know you're on a flow it. here. What year was this that you first started seeing these like pop up in while well, you were trying to get it to mainstream? I mean, like, not that long ago. What are we, 2020, 2017, something like that? Okay. Um, and I mean, I've been doing, you know, like I said, it's been 20 years that I've been in the fitness industry. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it used to be, you know, when you're talking about the early Perform Better Summits, like those, that was the only place you could grab a foam roller in person. I mean, it was like, like <laughs> yep. you couldn't even I get a hold of those things. And I then kettlebells were like, kettle- yeah, when, no, when RKC started selling kettlebells, it was the first time you could get a hold of decent kettlebells in the U.S., Yep. And I remember the first one I bought, the shipping was $84. The shipping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the shipping was just as much as the kettlebells most of the time. Yeah, and, and you said kids, kids these days don't understand these struggles, you know? like <laughs> Exactly. I actually got my first, uh, my first kettlebell at a Perform Better Summit because nice. I, was, I was hanging around. The summit ended. The entire facility was cleaning itself out. And then there was still, you know how at Perform Better, they always have like vendors at the back or around yeah. the outside or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And there was, a, they Perform Better themselves had kettlebells and they were just like, we don't want to ship this stuff back. Like, and they're literally walking around and be like, anyone want to buy this stuff? Like make me an offer. And I was like, how about 20 bucks for that kettlebell? Yeah. And they were like, done. So That's I got awesome. my first kettlebell that way. And it was because that weekend I'd actually seen uh, Steve Cotter who is a kettlebell sports style. Um, yeah. I saw Steve wow. Potter do a pistol squat with uh, double 32s, like a 32 kilogram on each side in the front rack and just nailed a pistol squat. And I was like, what the hell? About 140 that? pounds conversion. Yeah. Right? And the guy weighs about 140 pounds, right? maybe 160. Right. And I remember going, wow. holy shiza, I need to understand this. Right. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> so is strong. I don't know. Oh, dude, it's ridiculous. Um, but the thing is, what, what most people are used to um, and what most people have seen in the world of kettlebells is really almost entirely narrowed down to the RKC or Strong First. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and, I, and I did the training before Strong First existed, but mm-hmm. um, it, it, they're very, very similar. Um, and, and the reality is there's, there's hundreds of research articles out there on kettlebells. There's um, a ridiculous amount of kind of scientific understanding to be had. And a lot of it performed by really high-level researchers. I mean, Stuart McGill has done research on kettlebells. And uh, like a lot of the Russians, so like some of the, some of the best research out there is done on mass populations in the Russian military because kettlebell sport has been used in Russia and a lot of other Eastern Bloc countries for a very long time because it's very easy strength and conditioning and toughening exercise to use on mass. And so they have hundreds of people that they can run programs on. So there's lots of research out there on how strength and conditioning works for mass populations um, when it comes to cadets and when it comes to all the physiological adaptations. And so these are a lot of the things that, I essentially wanted to take my knowledge and background in training and loading and my, my, I'll call it lack of fear of putting heavy weights on people and bring it to more clinicians. So I created this kettlebells for clinicians course only to realize half the people there were people who were already into kettlebells. They just wanted more detail. They wanted the science. And so I ended up evolving it over time to what ended up becoming kettlebell science and ended up focusing on a lot more of uh, I'm not going to say the nuance um, because you can nuance things that aren't necessarily relevant, but focusing on what was actually applicable, right? So we have sections. So I have an interview with Stuart McGill in there, uh, but we have sections on the shear patterns in the spine and a kettlebell versus other movements. We have sections on 
uh, as it relates to DNS and reflex, uh, reflex stability on the different types of get-ups, on, on all these sorts of things. In the end, it is still a kettlebell course, uh, mm-hmm. but the reality is I wanted it to be a little more of a masterclass on movement and loading um, that you didn't know you were getting. And that was the whole point of me developing that course. So what do you think the biggest jump most of the actual clinicians, when you look at clinicians, you've taught clinicians in the last, whatever, 15 years, uh, to get to the point, where do you think the hurdle has to occur for them to put heavy weights in the hands of their patients? Uh, I mean, I think it's entirely between their own two years. Uh, for one thing, it's a matter of habit. And I think that's one of the reasons it takes time for uh, any industry to change because uh, I think you know, the kids that are graduating now from school they don't have the built-in fear mindset that we would have had coming out of school because they've seen it while they're in school. So their normal that they're going into is different than the normal you or I showed up into or people far before that. So I think that in and of itself is going to change because I think for a long time, people don't like changing the culture of what they do. Um, And that's, I'm fine with that. So that's one thing. I think, you know, as an industry, it's going to change over time when more and more kids come out of schools that have a really good background and the, the internet is massively helping with this. Uh, but the other thing is the, the therapists themselves. Um, I actually think it is highly valuable for me to show up to a room full of therapists and not just show them how to load their clients, but to load them up themselves. Because there's a lot to be said for the actual experience of seeing what it's like doing it yourself until you can, even though we all like to think we're perfectly scientific and evidence-based, most of us, if we hurt ourselves doing something, we have a hard time encouraging someone else to do it. Or most of us, if we've never done it, we have a hard time saying you should do this. Um, and the reality is, I think getting around to rooms full of clinicians and therapists, and, and even there's a lot of trainers that are afraid to load heavy nowadays because they've done such a good job of scaring themselves on the internet. Um, that I think showing up, putting heavy weight in their hands, telling them how to do it, giving them robust systems, showing them the evidence, and essentially convincing them that there are other people out there that are doing this and they're getting great results and their clients love it is just, it's huge for them. It's very empowering. It's, it's one of the, like, one of the things I, I, I call is like, it's, it's powered by permission, right? Like all it takes sometimes is me sh- looking someone in the eye and see being like, put some load on it. Let's go. Right. And if they're a therapist, they're kind of like, Oh, I'm allowed to do that. Okay, sure. Right. All they need is one person's permission that they respect. And then they're, they, they feel free to do it, but it kind of depends on the culture they're in and where they come from and their background. I mean, just like everything, you know, it's multifaceted. Yeah. And, and so that was the, the approach the clinicians have to get over that hurdle from the perspective of the strength coaches and trainers that you work with that have gone through this course. What's their big hurdle? Is it understanding the science? Is it red flags? Is it, um, or understanding Uh, anatomy? Well, I, I think generally speaking, uh, everyone across both industries, we have a real problem with pain. And I don't mean that in like, Oh, it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar problem, whatever. I mean, for some strange reason, as soon as people are in pain, we, we view them as fragile and we view them as they're going to fall apart. And the reality is, um, even though it makes me uncomfortable, the extent to which it's taken sometimes, I think most trainers are afraid to put someone who's uncomfortable or in pain under load. Um, and the reality is, I think that red flags need to be cleared. I think they need to be working with a good therapist. But I think a lot of it is they need to kind of understand the difference between, um, you know, injury and discomfort and injury and pain and when physical dysfunction uh, diverges from pain. And so, you know, it's all kind of person dependent. I have therapists who are, sorry, trainers in my world who they love to get their hands on people and pretend that they're manual therapists and doctors. 
And then I have therapists in my world who are afraid to do that and they're more comfortable training people. So uh, I apologize for the background noise here. So I think it's all going to be very, very person dependent. But with most of the trainers, most of the time, I think a lot of them are, they've been taught year over year to as soon as pain shows up, you're done, Mm -hmm. right? Like every certification out there. And I think that's good because that's, it's a safety first mentality, but I think that safety first mentality has unfortunately driven down a lot of trainers throats that essentially they are not allowed to work with people in pain. Um, and the reality is trying to fix a problem or trying to fix pain is different than working with someone who has a problem or who has pain. And I think that, uh, we've ended up with this kind of weird muddied water where therapists are afraid to load people and trainers are afraid to work with people in pain. And so we end up with this kind of in-between where we have a lot, of the, a lot of the injuries that I see are these kind of weird in-between injuries where the person's not debilitated. They can get up and they can walk around, but you know, they, they, they hurt if they do too much of something, right? Mm-hmm. So they walk into the gym without pain. They walk out of the gym with pain. They show up to see me and they go, well, you know, my shoulder hurts. And I go, okay. And we test it out and it seems fine. And they go, well, it only hurts after I do X amount of pull-ups, X amount of deadlifts, X amount of whatever right. it is. Right. Um, and I think the reality is I, you know, we need to get better at loading people, period. Um, regardless of whether it's therapist or trainer, we just need to get better at loading people. And to me, that comes from an understanding of the base principles of how to load people. Hey, I want to tell you all about Membrant. Membrant with a D in there, like Rembrandt. Membrant is an app platform. Now, this company is the one who built the Clinic Gym Hybrid app. And if you uh, purchase our accelerator program, you will get firsthand knowledge of what they do. But I think this is the next evolution in clinics who want to really give their patients better care, better service, while making it more convenient. So what Membrant can do is help you design a custom app for your company. This isn't just like rebranding somebody else's. This is your app that lives on the app store and your patients can download. Now, what's the power of an app? Well, let's just say, for example, that you have a certain protocol that you want your low back pain patients to go for. So let's say you include the McGill Big Three, a little talk about repetitive motions and finding your kind of McKinsey protocol of reducing your your pain through those repetitive asymptomatic movements. Well, you could tag the patients, meaning that you kind of put them on a list that says you want them to have access to the low back protocols, right? And then you could have another program of videos, articles, exercise descriptions, all that, that only go out to your patients with shoulder pain, right? Or ones that go out to patients with plantar fasciitis. If you can build that program, then what Membrane can help you do is make sure that only the patients that really need the plantar fasciitis exercises get that delivered to their phone. That thing that they're staring at, some estimates say as many as 500 times a day, all right? So check out membrant.com, membrant.com, or send me an email, I can hook you up with those guys and they can put together a fantastic program. I think it's really the future and it's one more way that technology will help you make more money while providing better care and a better business model. So check out membrant.com. If you were to tell our audience like, maybe the least known concept about loading individuals. I mean, for me personally, the big hurdle I would say that I can look at in the last 10 years, is the ability to load people. And obviously I'm not saying I'm an expert and you know, my wife right now like has a cranky back, which is like the first time in her life. And I'm thinking about, it, I'm going, you know what? I haven't loaded her enough. But the first big hurdle for me was that posture 
the posture the person's in, aka like lying down versus kneeling, can greatly impact their ability to handle load. And if you reduce the postural load, a lot of times they will see dramatic improvement or dramatic abilities increase. And then that's a great way to lead them into more load or more ability. Well, that was like a light bulb moment to me, like, oh my God, it's not just lightening up the load or the implement. How about trying, you know, the posture and like going to a, say, quadruped position where you have multiple points of support that you don't have when you're standing? Yeah. So, I mean, you essentially just outlined the basics of stability and motor control uh, and motor learning when it comes down to it, is that, you know, a lot of people will call this the best thing you can do well. Um, And the reality is if you're in a posture that's chronically causing you pain, you're probably not doing it well and needs to be regressed in some way, shape or form, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So uh, there's a couple of things. I think for one thing, the biggest hurdle I think a lot of people, a lot of people have is actually the numbers and the objective weight itself. So for instance, I think that's a huge reason why people love elastic bands as opposed Mm -hmm. to a weight because there's no number Mm -hmm. attached to it. There's, there's literally nothing. Um, whereas the human physiology adapts to the mechanical and chemical stimulus. It doesn't adapt to a number, right? The reality is I could probably get people to do a rack pull with a barbell from just above their kneecaps with 400 pounds and it wouldn't cause them pain. And that person might get pain deadlifting 135 pounds from the ground. The weight on the bar is double to triple what it would be pulling from the ground. But as you said, it's it's one of the reasons I think more people need to understand the basics of using heavy weight because the reality is I would rather take a heavy weight and make the person feel as though it's light than to take a light weight and have the person feel as though it's heavy because one of those is empowering. One is very disempowering. Yeah. And if I take, if I can put 300 pounds on a barbell or if I can even just put a hundred pounds in a barbell and that person can move it regardless of the range of motion, regardless of, uh, of the actual movement itself, I can put a hundred pounds in a barbell and they can move it without pain. That is empowering to them versus I put them in a stupid, awkward, disempowering position on an unstable surface with their eyes crossed and their tongue in their cheek and looking in a weird direction, trying to police perfection and then get them to use a TheraBand and all of a sudden they start shaking and they go, God, I can't even use a TheraBand. Right. And I, I kind of look at it and I go, there, like, there's, a, there's a time and a place to, to move towards ideal when it comes to ideal posture, when it comes to ideal motor learning environments. But the reality is I would significantly rather take the same intrinsic load on the body and make it appear like a higher external load to the psychology of the human being. And I think that's one of the reasons we just need to understand how to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people go, oh, I I can't touch my toes. And I go, all right, well, we're just not going to touch your toes right now, but let's do some deadlifts. And they go, what? I go, well, we'll do deadlifts from blocks. So we'll do it from rack pulls, but like, let's put some load on you. And they kind of go, but I can't touch my toes. And I go, I know we're not pulling from the ground. We're pulling from way above that. You'll be fine. Right. And then sure enough, they do five sets of five later with something that is generally going to be heavier than they would pull from the ground and their back feels better. They feel excited and voila. And there's, there's systematic ways to do this. So for instance, in my clinic, um, we have indoor turf. The indoor turf we have is insanely slippery, huh. which, which is not great. But the reason I'm saying that is I can take almost every plate that we have and throw it on a sled and most people can move it. <laughs> That's very empowering versus I take an empty sled and I put it on the rubber and they can't move it. And it's not like, it's not trickery. It's just good coaching. I would rather take four 45 pound plates, throw them on a sled and have them push it back and forth, get their heart rate up and go, wow, look at this. I'm moving heavy weights versus put them on with an empty sled on rubber and then go, Oh God, I can't do it. Right. Like the reality is that there's, there's a language and there's a culture and there's all these different things. 
And I think most of us are fooled by the standard versions of every single movement. And we don't understand progressions, regressions, and lateralizations when it comes to everything besides just adding more or less weight to standard movements. Um, and I think it's really, really valuable for uh, the problems that we run into as therapists to be able to kind of go, okay, there's, there's tempo, there's friction, there's attentional focus, um, there's uh, breathing rhythms, there's a million other things you can do to make things easier on the human being. And so the, the, the base tenets of the kettlebell course, in it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of the tenet in disguise, is you're stronger than you think you are. And essentially, we're going to teach you how to take a really heavy cannonball with a handle and fling it around at high velocities and feel no pain, regardless, right? So, like, I, I taught a kettlebell course, an in-person kettlebell course, two weeks after I herniated a disc, right? So I had the pain down the leg. Believe me, it was not the most comfortable weekend of my life. But the reality is the only thing I didn't do that weekend was snatches because the, the, the force vectors on snatches generally have a long, long lever arm, a higher level of torque on the low back, Right. And the reality is, especially I especially the eccentric breaking, like the slowing down portion, right? Like ex- exactly. So I, I just chose not to do that one. Yeah. Right. I taught two weekends in a row. So two weeks after I did it, and I didn't, I didn't actually herniate a disc doing kettlebells. The embarrassing thing is, I did it doing a freaking cable row at the gym, um, and just pop. And don't go full went, bro, dude. You can't go full bro <laughs> after full functional. Everybody knows that. Yeah, apparently. So yeah, just the eccentric portion of the snatch was the only part of the weekend I couldn't do. I could do get ups, I could do goblet squats, I could do deadlifts, I could do swings, I could do presses, I could do pretty well everything yeah. else. While my back was for the most part in full on spasm, right? Like it was yeah. just kind of holding on for dear life. And the reality is I didn't tell everyone that until the end of the weekend. And they went, what? Like everyone that was there. And I went like, I'm just trying to prove a point to you here that injury does not mean that you're, uh, like your body is broken top to bottom. And that if you do things well, and if you alter accordingly, you should be able to move heavyweights aggressively with a large amount of athleticism, regardless of your injury state. You know, I'm not going to say that applies across the board, but I mean, it, it, I mean, you're talking to a guy and <laughs> that's broken more bones than most small nations, right? Like, I don't play light. And the reality is I've continued to train through the vast majority of those. And a lot of that's because I kind of have this base understanding of how to progress, regress, and lateralize. And I heal quickly as a result of that, because the, the, as you said, I think, you know, sweat glands are analgesic. I feel better after I work out. Um, and I also, you know, the, the global effects of exercise are going to help almost any injury to heal quickly, as long as you have the tool set to not irritate or delay the actual injury healing itself. So I think for the most part, the, the biggest problem that most people have with loading for one is that they're afraid of it when they're injured. And secondarily is that they're fooled by the numbers because the reality is you could take, I could hold a five pound dumbbell tight in towards my chest and it would weigh practically nothing. Whereas I could take that same five pound dumbbell and extend it in my super long lanky arms all the way out to the side. And the intrinsic load of the system is significantly higher because the lever arm is a force multiplier. And the reality is that people are going to be fooled by going, Oh, it's only a five pound weight or they're going to go, Oh, but that's a 200 pound barbell. And the reality is your body doesn't know numbers, right? Like your, your muscle fibers and your nervous system don't know numbers. They only know force and they only know chemicals. And if you can find ways to take those force and those chemicals and make almost every human being on the, on the planet capable of taking the force or the chemical levels that you want, you, it's so empowering to people. You can have someone who walks into a Spider-Man along the wall and limping off to one side. You can do a workout with them before they leave, even though they didn't sleep for two days because of pain. Um, and the reality is, I think, that's a really, really valuable skill set. And I, I created this whole course to try to give people more tools and a better framework 
and a better understanding of how it all integrates into one kind of big picture of actually working with human beings who are in pain and feel threatened and feel broken, but we're going to teach them to move anyway. Yeah, I, I, this definitely resonates with me. A couple stories just to add color here. Uh, I jacked up my back one time reaching down to pick, clean up my kids' uh, matchbox cars, which are right. about half an inch off the ground. And I just remember, like, I can't believe it, you know, like the stupid matchbox cars were too much for me. And I, and I had this like victimized mentality of like, they, those little tiny cars defeated me, you know? And, uh, and it takes a lot to get over that. Like I, I, and here I am somebody that understands all aspects of back pain that understands, you know, that injuries heal, that understands the body's resilient. I understand those things cognitively, but, uh, emotionally and, um, you know, the psychologically, those are much harder to understand. And, uh, that, that totally hosed me to your point. I remember, uh, I had a guy who came in limping pain down his leg and about three weeks later had him trap bar deadlifting from, from blocks, but he trap bar deadlift. I said, Hey, as long as you feel safe, just keep going up. And I stopped him right around. He previously had done about 400 pounds on deadlift. And I previous, I stopped him about three fifteen. uh, and he could have gone further. I was just, you know, kind of being like playing to my insurance policy, essentially, <laughs> like, in the gym, <laughs> yeah. you know, but in all sense, he's like, I can't, I just can't get over this. And you could see that he was just blown away that his same body was in so much pain two weeks earlier and now is, is lifting heavy loads. Yep. And the psychology of that definitely helped him have a more rapid recovery time. You know, you could see that he believed he was going to get better. Therefore, he did get better. And yeah. I think there are certain exercises. I think the kettlebell snatch is one of them. But anytime you can successfully get people who felt they were weak for whatever reason, injury, or they're just not a, they don't identify as a strong person, or they've been beaten in sports, or they have, you know, family issues or whatever, you get heavy ass weight over their head. Magic happens. A lot of magic happens. And it's, deadlifts are great getting, you know, like, especially when you, you get close to deadlifting somebody's body weight. I think the first time in their life, they, they actually pull their body weight off the ground, but man, you get some heavy ass weight over their head. Or I always say a woman does her first pull up with no assistance. Those are like light bulb moments in their ability to identify as strong. And, uh, and it's, it's pretty damn impressive. So yeah, those are, those are life-changing moments for a yeah. lot of people. Um, and that's, like I said, I think one of the biggest values that I get out of, out of teaching courses to therapists in person is that they themselves get to experience it. Because I don't know too many therapists that haven't been jacked up, right, or haven't been royally messed at some point in their life. It's how half of people out there end up as chiros or physios, right? Is they kind of go, oh, I had a physio who I blew out my knee and he did a wonderful thing for me and now I'm back, right? I, you know, for better or for worse, I have the, the distinct advantage of having broken more than two dozen bones in my life. I've had massive amounts of concussions. I've been kind of an extreme sports addict most of my life. I was snowboarding off of my two-story roof by the time I was 12. And that's, that's just who I am. And as a result, I have this intrinsic trust. You still there? Okay, good. I have this intrinsic trust built in that I'm going to come back, that I'm going to be fine in the future, and that I'm, I'm, I'm going to live. You know, I've... <laughs> I, I thought recently that like my, my gravestone should read, but did you die? Right? Because <laughs> the reality is there's so many times where people can catastrophize small things, um, but they very seldom take a catastrophe and make it into something small. And I think that's a skill set that's highly valuable, but it takes proof. You can't talk people off of the ledge of going, okay, I'm sure this looks really bad, but you're going to be fine later. You can't talk people out of it. You just can't. 
But when someone does a pull-up for the first time in their life and it happens six weeks after a back injury, that's proof. And they kind of go, damn, that's amazing. Like I never would have guessed. I didn't think I'd ever be able to do this. Nonetheless, when I just hurt myself recently. But it takes, you know, repetitive convincing of people. Um, and a lot of the time, the repetitive convincing comes through loading because load is the thing that proves to people that they're robust the vast majority of the time. So to kind of to, to put the real nail in the coffin on that, that back injury story. So this was just June of this year, uh, this, this last year, 2019. It was and every, every course since you go get a, a, a discogram right before the course just to, you know, you're like, add 10 cc's to that, that disc on my back. So I'm always in pain at courses now so I can show people how powerful our coursework is. <laughs> Well, you know what? The funny thing oh, is no. that wasn't okay. the intent. Um, so like I, it, it's funny. So this is the second time I've herniated a disc. The first one, funny enough, was at a Perform Better seminar a long time ago. Um, it was just, it was clearly coming because it happened while I was doing something pretty menial, um, similar to, you know, picking up a, you know, picking up a little toy off the ground, right? Kind of like, oh, well, there was probably something waiting to happen there. Um, but the second time I did it, I was at the gym, I was doing these cable rows. And I felt the only way I could describe it is like the same sensation you get from crunching a cold grape between your teeth. It was like a pop crunch feeling in my back. And I kind of went, Oh, that's not good. And I stood up and started walking around on the turf in this gym. And I kind of went shit, like instantly it, it just felt like something gave way in my spine. And I kind of went shit mostly because, uh, this was on Tuesday starting the following Monday, six days later, I was scheduled to hike the West coast trail which is like a 70 or 80 mile week long through hike with no support with a 70 pound backpack on. Right. And I kind of went, uh Oh, right. And I went, this is, this is not good. Clearly I just herniated a disc. So I literally, I went home, told my wife and I went and she went, Oh man, but the West coast trail. And I went, we're fine. We're, we're still good. Like we're still going to go. And she goes, are you sure? And I went, we're still going to go. So I, that day I went online, found a secondhand stand up desk for home because sitting was horrible. Uh, found a secondhand stand-up desk, drove across town, got it, called my doctor, made an appointment for the following day and said, I know I just herniated a disc. Um, I just, I would really like some imaging because I need to know if this is something that I should be taking pretty seriously and if it's going to be progressing in the next few days. So he, he knew me because I really only go to see him when I know something's wrong. Um, and he went, all right. So he got me a CT scan. So Wednesday, I went and picked up the desk. Thursday, I went to my doctor. Saturday, I got the CT scan. Uh, Sunday morning, I left to drive to the trailhead of the West Coast Trail. We do the West Coast Trail. I go seven days sleeping in a tent on the ground. And on the bus ride on the way home from the West Coast Trail uh, to Victoria, British Columbia, I get an email with an imaging report from my doctor saying, for lack of better words, gigantic disc herniation shot up the back and dropped two segments. Right? And I'm going, oh, that explains a lot. That was on uh, the following Thursday or Friday. I woke up the next morning and taught a kettlebell course uh, in Victoria and then waited around for another five days and then taught another kettlebell course in Victoria. So in the three weeks following uh, an acute disc herniation with all the pain that came along with it, I hiked the West Coast Trail and taught two 16-hour courses where I had to demonstrate every kettlebell movement on the planet. And the only reason I'm saying this is the vast majority of people if they've never had an injury and they've never convinced themselves they can load through an injury, there's a really good chance they hurt their back, they freak out, and they stay in bed for a month. Or they call every therapist on their list and say, I messed myself up, I'm injured, I'm going to be messed, I can barely walk, I'm going to do all these things. And I literally, knowing because I've done it before and knowing because of my, my history 
and having dealt with, you know, extreme pain before, because herniating a disc can be a real, you know, not fun time. Um, I was confident I could do it. And so I had very, very little pain. I had forgotten about it for two days on the West Coast Trail. And then I got back four weeks later and I kind of went, okay, I'm home. Now, if I got to deal with it, I can deal with it. And what did I do? I started loading. I started lifting slowly but surely, progressively. I wasn't doing it from the ground. I wasn't doing any kettlebell snatches. I wasn't doing anything that systematically made the problem worse. And so that was by the first weekend of July. And by the end of September, I was deadlifting from the ground again. I was deadlifting over 200 pounds for 10 plus reps from the ground. And I, I only deadlift like high 300s anyway, most of the time. And I was back to it. And the reason I'm saying all this is I don't wish those injuries on people. I don't want that kind of stuff to happen to people. But what I do want is for them to show up to a course with me and for me to call their injuries bullshit and to say, okay, that disc is what, this big? Like a real bad one? You got what, a one and a half centimeter issue? What about the other 99.9% of your body that's now capable of lifting weights? Let's, let's load that. Let's, let's make the human being happy and a human being robust while the body takes care and does what it does with these other things. And I think the combination of my experience plus my ability to be exposed to so much through the world of education with somatic senses education makes me go, I know I've got the skill set to deal with this. I know I've got the experience to tell me it's going to be fine. My job now is to go out there and convince other people the same, right? Because I'm sick of therapists convincing people they're broken. I'm sick of therapists telling people to be careful. I'm sick of the safety first mentality. It's more like as long as the safety box is checked and you're good enough at your job to make sure you're not going to make it worse and you're going to encourage healing, you should be thinking, okay, safety is taken care of. Now I want to build aggressively robust and happy human beings. And that's, that's a big part of what I do now. Anyway, long story. Oop, hold on. So, so the cure for a, uh, a multi-level disc herniation in your case was a trip with your wife combined with a yard sale or garage sale to get a secondhand disc carrying weight on your back up and down the West Coast, followed by a bus ride and teaching a kettlebell course. If, if every yeah. patient would just do that their herniations would just go right away. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice, right? <laughs> and, and, and granted, you know, this one, it was, uh, it was a central herniation. So for anyone mm -hmm. listening, listening that's a therapist, you know, generally in my experience, central herniations tend to hurt a lot more in the spine and a lot less down the leg. The yeah. first time I herniated a disc, it was lateral, and it uh, gave me just horrible, horrible radiating pain. Um, you probably couldn't have convinced me to try to do any work at the time. Uh, yeah. But this one, this one was central, and I figured as much judging by the fact that as I went through my days, I got very little pain down the legs and I kind of went, all right, like I don't have a lot of nerve tension issues going on or mm -hmm. kind of neuropathy issues going on. I'm probably good to start loading it as long as I'm not doing the things that really aggravate yeah. it. So I think it's, yeah. you know, I think being a therapist who has experienced injuring themselves over and over again, um, but also kind of knowing, you know, I mean, I've, I'm friends with Michael Shacklock and I've taken his course four or five times and understanding the basics and, you know, I've taken all of McGill's stuff and read his books over and over again and being generally aware of kind of the broad array of the materials that are out there that I could use to understand and handle this injury made it so that cognitively I, I kind of knew what I could do, but then mm -hmm. emotionally I was actually ready to do it. And like you said, those are actually kind of two different things. You know, there's a difference between knowing cognitively what's going on and actually being ready to do it. And if anything, regardless of the knowledge that comes out of teaching kettlebell courses, half the time, I'm just really excited because the first time I taught this course, I had a 72-year-old, five-foot-one female chiropractor who doesn't load people at all come to the course. And I loved watching her do kettlebell swings because she was so excited to do them herself. 
And regardless of the skill set, and I knew that she, I know she wasn't going to go back and buy kettlebells for her clinic. I knew that she had a significantly higher trust in the body's ability to do extravagantly powerful things as a result of being there, right? And that to me is just so extremely powerful. She had taken a heavy weight, you know, relatively speaking, a heavy weight and made it feel light when what most of what she had perceived therapy to be before that was taking lightweight and making it feel hard, right? Yeah. And that's, that's not the goal for me most of the time. Sometimes, very seldom. Yeah. I do love, uh, you know, equipment tricks that you can play on your, your clients. Like you and I spoke about uh, earlier, uh, competition kettlebells, if everybody knows what those are. They're all the yeah. same size, so they look like basically about the size of a volleyball or basketball with a handle on it, no matter what the weight is. So they never decrease in size. They just basically hollow them out more to make them less heavy. But yeah. they're a great rehab tool because you can say, just grab the yellow one or grab the green one rather than saying grab the 55-pound one. And people are like, whoa, that sounds heavy. It's like, no, no, it's just <laughs> green. Can you lift green? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I've never lifted green. Well, grab that and you can lift green. And uh, I think the same thing can happen on a little bit lesser level, but with bumper plates, they look big and scary and heavy. What, uh, what I actually did when I set up my gym was instead of telling people to, you know, because all bumper plates uh, at the time were black, we got red were the 45s and let me think here, yellow were 25s and greens were 15s and blacks were 10. So you can just say, put another red or a couple more reds on there. And they have a general idea how heavy they are. But if you yeah. talk colors or, or um, you know, stripe or something like that, or call it old Bessie or something, <laughs> you know, it's amazing how much of a, just how much of a breakthrough that helps people get when you're not focused on the weight. Like, oh, grab a 65 pounder. And they're like, that sounds like a lot. You know, like my son weighs 45 pounds. Like, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. Now you and I yeah. know they'll be, that we can train them to be fine, but Again, they're up against that psychological battle going on in their head, which is totally normal. And that's why you have to bring in the skill of being a, a therapist or a doctor rather than just making this a, a checklist of, of weights to progress on. That's just not how human beings work. If it was, hell, this would be easy. But yeah. it ain't easy. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree. And, and the funny thing is it's, it just plays into that same like screw numbers. Like we, we all care about the numbers way too much. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think people need to understand load a little bit more, not because it allows you to put more load on people necessarily, even though I think we need to do that, but because it allows you to take something that people would perceive as a heavy load and understand how to put it on someone. And I mean, so like for, you could have one implement, like literally one kettlebell and make it harder over time if you understand loading, right? All it really takes is understanding timing, lever arms, tension and relaxation, a lot of these sorts of things, because all you can really do is just change those things with the same same level of implement, and that can be less threatening, right? Yeah. Like there's all these tools that you can use to be a very good coach that yeah, are not one, just adding it. One of the coolest warm ups I've ever done in my life, which actually was way more challenging than I thought would than the thought it would be. I was uh, at a gym that's training mostly with kettlebells, so they just put there was eight of us in the class, and they put a circle of like ten kettlebells of various weights. I think the lightest was seventeen, and the uh, Heaviest was probably like a 73 and they all very, and that's in pounds, by the way, not kilos. Um, and they just put them in a big circle. And it was like, hey, we're going to spend one minute with each kettlebell in a big circle. And you just rotate. And it was just like, do something that you can warm up with this weight. So obviously when the, the uh, you know, there were weights where I'm like, oh, I could do a Turkish get up with this or I can swing that or something. And then it gets a little heavy and you're like, oh, I should just deadlift it. The best was to see the very light people who typically don't handle a 73 pound kettlebell. What were they going to do with it? And there was a woman who was just doing like single leg 
uh, RDLs or, or Romanian deadlifts. And then just using that weight to, so go down into the, the, the bottom position of that and then press that into the ground. That was her warm up using that. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then I got to the 17 and I'm like, oh, this is so light. And then you're like, well, that's interesting. Where would this challenge me in a warm up that I could use 17 pounds? You know, like, yep. and, and where can I benefit? And it took a little bit of mental gymnastics to go like, I still need this to benefit me. They're not saying to just take it easy. You know, I'm not going to swing a 17 pound kettlebell and consider that a warm up. So, uh, yep. you know, I tried single leg squats using it as a counterbalance. And then I tried um, arm bars as a, and just use that weight as a reminder. But, both, it was just really, and I would encourage anybody out there, try that, you know, put out a bunch of different weights and just see how creative you can be. How many times can you make it through the circle never doing the same exercise twice or something? I think it's, uh, it definitely challenges you and it teaches you about load because it doesn't just have to be heavy. It just has to be uh, a change to what your brain perceives as normal, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's one, of the, one of the things that if you don't come from some kind of training background or have at least a lot of experience in, you know, even if you're a therapist is that we tend to look at everything as 90 degree angles. We tend to look at everything yeah. as, as pulleys and levers. Um, and the reality is like, it's, it's really not that hard to make like light, light things heavy. And it's not that hard to make heavy things light as long as you just kind of understand some basic rules about it. Right. So, I mean, mm-hmm. like if you think that your body weight isn't enough to train, like try to learn how to do some pistol squats, my friend, like try uh-huh. to learn how to do some strict pull-ups, my friend. Like it's, it, that's with no external weight whatsoever. And it's the same thing. If you think, you know, a 73 pound kettlebell is too heavy, put it up on two yoga blocks and deadlift mm-hmm. it. Like mm-hmm. the vast majority of people who weigh only as much as the kettlebell could probably do that. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, it's not, it's not just those numbers, just kind of understanding the rules of how to apply load to the body. That's not number based. Right. And creativity helps a lot. Yeah. I love it. Well, Ben, where can people get, uh, find more about your education and, and see this kettlebell course and et cetera. Um, you could go to somaticsenses.com. Uh, you just Google somatic senses. You'd be able to find it or somatic senses education, uh, somaticsenses.com. And you can find live courses there of which, because we're in the middle of this COVID crisis, a lot of those have been canceled. Um, but you can find some live courses there. Uh, none of the kettlebell ones are currently scheduled. Uh, so if anyone listening to this wants to bring a kettlebell course into their hometown, please, you know, feel free to reach out through somaticsenses.com. Um, and then there's some online education there as well. Um, I should mention this knowing that it's going to be, uh, knowing that this will be published in the next few weeks, hopefully is that I am planning on doing, uh, essentially an online mentorship for about a month long. Um, I have yet to decide the start date, but if you go to somaticsenses.com, go to online courses, what you'll see is uh, an online kettlebell mentorship. Um, and so the plan is to bring in some guest speakers, some guest coaches, and go through the entire kettlebell science online curriculum together with people and actually do some live Zoom calls for coaching, uh, bring in some people to lecture on their specific topics and actually get a lot more one-on-one interaction than you would typically in an online course. Nice. So people can, people can be on the lookout for that. We're probably going to cap that at 10 or 12 people, something of that yeah. sort, and maybe, maybe do one about every six weeks. Um, <laughs> but I was literally, I was setting that up this morning. Awesome. Want to be, want to be a guest coach you got, Josh? Uh, sure, man. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about it later. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, I think that's great. I think it's, it's, um, you know, the, the idea of education certainly has changed. I mean, and this idea of this hybrid of, you know, live and in person and, and mentorship versus just watching streaming videos, I think is definitely going to be a future. I think it's a future of, you know, we're going to see music change. We're going to see a lot of things change. So I'm glad you're taking those steps because I think 
human beings inherently want engagement. That's why we all have jobs is, you know, they want to be engaged. They can find the information we provide on YouTube by this point in, in history. Yep. But we provide expertise, simplification, and engagement. So, all right. Well, Ben, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate all the insight, certainly about kettlebells. And I think that, you know, the other tool, the other piece of this we never even talked about is it's one of the most cost-efficient ways to start offering exercise and rehab in your clinic. You know, like, oh, yeah. you, you know, bands certainly are cheap, but they do break and they do, you know, you run out of them quick. Kettlebells, uh, you know, you can shoot them, you can run them over, you can set them on fire, drop them down the stairs, throw leave them out back, uh, leave them in the rain. They still actually function pretty damn well after all that, you know? Yeah, so, mine are all outside. I'm sitting outside right now beside yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, besides eight kettlebells, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're staying outside all summer during this stuff. Right. Because um, they're pretty robust and pretty easy to use for pretty well everything I need. Right. And so uh, if you just get a, a set of, of each weight as you learn how to use it and, and educate yourself, they'll last forever. And people love them, you know, and they can't break them. As long as you have rubber on the floor, like you, you can drop them as much as you want. I mean, your downstairs neighbors or, or next door neighbors may not appreciate it, but certainly they're <laughs> robust enough to put up with it. So, yeah. yeah. And if anyone listening to this has any specific questions about kettlebells, um, you know, regardless of whether or not you ever want to take the online course or the in-person course, if you have any questions, just go to somaticsenses.com and submit a contact through there, or you can email me. Uh, it's just drbenstevens at gmail.com or ben at somaticsenses.com. You can email me anytime. I'll answer any questions you've got. Fantastic. All right. Well, with that, Ben, I really appreciate your time today. Congratulations on the sunny weather. I hope it lasts for you. Me too. And on behalf of Dr. Ben Stevens, this is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there, maximize your license, and live the life you dream of. Thanks a lot, Ben. Take care, sir. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's Clinic gymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.